We're back to the Neil Haley show here on the caregiver Dave celebrity segment. Excited to welcome the program caregiver Dave Nassani. Dave, what's going on, man? How are you? How you doing, man? It's been busy, busy, busy. I've done uh, interviews all over the country about gas prices, how they're going up, going to the moon. Five mistakes to avoid when you fill her up at the pump. Don't be a chump at the pump. Ah, so that's, see, that's so we'll have to ask our, our guest, the dialogue coach, if that's good dialogue to certain people to hear that message about uh, gas prices. So I'm excited to welcome the program expert dialogue coach, David Camp. David, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm good. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, so dialogue, define dialogue coach. And we're going to go a little bit into, you know, the Royals and Meghan Markle and how that dialogue conversation you have a tip for us but define what a dialogue coach is well a dialogue coach helps you have a better conversation a lot of times people are talking about the uh, things that are not most helpful to them and a dialogue coach helps you stay on uh, stay on the right topic choose the right topics and then stay within the right attitude toward the conversation so you can get the most out of it dialogue is about building connections and also allowing for the possibility of collaboration. But sometimes the way we have conversations don't allow that as much as we could. So my job is to help people. That's how you think about conversations. You can have it better and thus right, have yeah. more activity and more collaboration. Yeah. Memory is very important. Uh, I, you know, when I'm on the uh, interview circuit, et cetera, sometimes, now maybe it's just because I'm 67 years old, I will just lose my train of thought and I won't know where I am. And so I'll put a, uh, you know, a little outline notes just to get me back on track. Is that a good idea or, or am I? Oh, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fine idea. I mean, <laughs> I, think, I think that part of what is important to do is to try to be intentional about the conversations we have. That's a part of it. So certainly being intentional includes m- making sure I have my little memory aids that I need to keep track. But, yeah. but as important as, okay, wh- what do I want this conversation to accomplish? And I think that ultimately, a lot of times people have bad conversations because they don't they, they don't remember what they're trying to accomplish. Exactly. Yeah. Or, the, or yeah, have that goal. So even if you get off track, you forget what you've memorized or what you're supposed to do, look at the goal and instinctively you'll get there. What am I trying to do here? Mm-hmm. When I was trying Great. to provide tips this morning at five 30 for one room, I opened up in the UK with a, and the person didn't show up and I had to be the expert in an area in podcasting. I didn't really want to be in because I had to go into more of the technical side of things, which I have a team that can take care of all that stuff. Oh my gosh. I, I was losing my train of thought and said, man, that's what clubhouse brings. You got to be on your a game every time you speak. And so that's yeah. the thing. So how do you become that dialogue coach? What makes you the expert as a dialogue coach? Well, I've been uh, dealing with and thinking about dialogue for a, a few decades now. So when I, uh, I, I have my PhD from UC Berkeley, when I finished out, I went to work for the White House for the President's Initiative on Race. Clinton had this oh, national wow. race initiative, national dialogue project. I was the lead advisor on that. Wow. <clears throat> that ended. Then I worked for a long time for various organizations and, um, that were all about dialogue. They're trying to help people have better conversation. So that's that's why my Twitter handle is the uh, at the dialogue guy, also Instagram too, because uh, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I wrote my first book about dialogue in 2007. So I think I'm, I think it comes from um, uh, my parents bickered a lot and, <laughs> I always, and I always wanted them to have a better conversation because they'd be happier. So I think I'm, I'm still trying to heal the little boy within me by uh, helping people have better conversations. Wow. Are there a lot of guys like you out there? I mean, I've never heard of a dialogue coach or you have got competition. Well, there are people there. I mean, there are people who um, think about, how to help people have conversations. Typically, so for example, right. there are a lot of people in the world of like diversity, inclusion, equity, and whole race relations business whose 
who, you know, there's a whole bunch of those consultants and, and some of that work involves helping people have better conversations. Certainly when I approach that work, when I try to help companies or boards or nonprofits, my whole approach is how can we have a better conversation about these issues so we can find more connectivity and greater potential for collaboration. So there are and, people who do yeah. that. Meetings not have a lot to do with that as well. Per se. Like, what? Right. I was saying meetings have a lot to do with that as well. Meaning a successful meeting that you have for a company. And how do you allow the dialogue to be pr productive, positive, yet not waste time? Not right. Waste so time. that's yeah. huge, isn't it? It's a, it's a huge thing. And part of what is a, is a dilemma around even that is that one of the things that we know from the research about diversity and inclusion is that when you include more different types of voices, whether it's whether you want, you know, whether it's gender or race or thinking style or whatever, what inevitably happens is, is that it takes longer to come to a decision, but you usually come to better decisions, right? So, so yes, you, you're you're trading off right the inclusion question versus the efficiency time question. Those are those are important, and it's a, it's very useful to like think through consciously what am I trying to get done on that, so I can, you can thread that needle like you need to. Good, Dave. David, let's talk about race relations. Um, how are we doing from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? I mean, uh, the country's so divided. Half of them think, what, what race problems? Yeah, no problems. And the other half are saying, oh, no, no, we've got to tear everything down. Where are we, really? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Your, your quote of half and half is about right. That certainly is yes. true. Like, that, 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 if you look at the um, polling data, like, uh, that's particularly true in the white population, that about half think that racism is a, is a problem that needs to be dealt with and about half don't. And so I often tell people that the real divide in this country is not between people of color and white people, it's among white people who look at this issue very differently. And so that's, that's why I have this project. Uh, my company's called The Dialogue Company. I have a project called The White Ally Toolkit, which is all about trying to help white folks who think racism is a problem have better conversations with people who don't think it's a problem and using dialogue skills so that wow. calling, people calling people names or making them feel bad, but it's about inviting them to a new kind of conversation. Because I think if we're gonna really move the ball on, on racial issues, the half of the people who think, the half of the white folks think race is important have to, they can't be calling everybody a racist and kind of shame them. And, you know, the pe people have these right. tactics that are completely non-productive. Like it, it doesn't fit what we know about neuroscience, what we know about persuasion. So what I try to do is to persuade people that there's a better way of trying to talk about these issues so we're less divided. And so, um, so in terms of your question of how what we're doing, I mean, there's, there's progress, but that that 55% of white folks exactly. race is not a problem. That's been stuck there for a long time. On the other hand, we see progress. Like in 1990, 60% of white folks would answer on a survey that um, black people are lazier than white people. By 2016, it was 30%. Now you could be mad at the 30%, or you could say in 30 years, it's that's improved. a lot of change. It's improved. Right, so I'm just saying how you want to look at it, right? And see, you can't compare people of any race anything and say oh but that's that person because there's no way of looking at that there the, the everybody is different in so many different ways and it's too bad that people look at that and yeah when anyone says it's racism a problem it's a whole talking point because racism is still a problem you can flat out see it for based on the kkk and all these different groups still out there and discrimination that's going on in every uh, area of life, and well, so I, mean, I, I used to say, but the problem is, a whole bunch of people don't see it. Like, I like it would be, it would be great. I mean, it, it would be great if everybody saw it. But the nature of this kind of thing is that it's just invisible enough that it that you can just choose not to see it. That's why the whole thing with George Floyd was so explosive because there, there's not been a time in the past where we we saw a murder live, like live on tape, 
and saw the face of murder, right? That, that it, this, is, this is um an insight from Ava DuVernay that we never see the face of the murder. We just see the face of the victim. So part of why this was so different is because you can't avoid it. Well, in most of the time in life about racial issues, you can decide not to see something. And, if, you know, you can decide it doesn't really exist. Yeah. So uh, that's another thing that bothers me is, is the violence, you know, um, and the way we are reacting to the violence, whether it's the violence from the left or the violence from the right. Uh, why are we so divided, David? Right. Well, uh, <laughs> I think part of what I think part of what's going on is that um, our society is changing and it scares a fair amount of people. Right. And then what happens is, is that people who so the insurgent group, the insurgent group, you know, people of color, et cetera, we make demands on the, the, the sort of traditional white mainstream is in power. We make demands that they be different, that they look at themselves differently, that they think about who they are and how they relate to other people. And that's very complicated. Like we make demands without recognizing that it's a headache to do all that. Like people, if you're in an oppressed group, you're a woman, you're a person of color, right. person of minority, you've been thinking about like how I have to manage myself and how I show up in the world forever. And you have years and years, decades of traditions of that. You're, most white people haven't had to think about that, especially white men. So we're now demanding they do that, but we're not recognizing that, you know, that, that, that whole complexity thing, like you have to do it, but it's a headache. We don't, we don't have a good invitation, you know, out of compassion based on that. So people are demanding that they do that. And of course, people are like, I don't want to do that. And thus, thus we are, our politics are stuck as they're, we're afraid of these changes because the people who feel like there's negatively impacted them, they're not being invited into another future. They're being demanded. Now, all they feel is lost. They don't, the invitation doesn't come with, here's how things will be better if we do that. It's just a demand and people resist. So it's unfortunate. And part of what, part of the reason dialogue is important is so people can exactly make a better invitation to this new future as opposed to just a demand. So looking at dialogue and looking at conversations, let's give you an example on a talk show where two people, one person might be completely interviewing as a journalist while somebody else might be completely have their heart in their sleeve to ask questions that could offend the other person. And Dave, you know what I'm talking about. How do you create dialogue that makes sure that you re-engage re each person as the host presenter to keep things calm? It happens even in clubhouse rooms. And I've heard stories, but I mean, even in marketing rooms or different rooms where someone disagrees with someone's opinion, how as the host, you bring them back with keeping everyone from not going crazy and angry. Well, it's funny, the hosts need to do the same thing that I tell people to do who are not hosts, but are just trying to have a better conversation through with people that they know about, people they know. And that is this, a critical thing to keeping conversation blowing up is to keep the conversation grounded in experience, not just opinion. So people express different opinions, but what you want to do is to make sure you spend more of your conversational time on, tell me an experience that makes you think that. Uh -huh. right? so, so, so because it's, it, you, you can refute somebody's opinion, but it's hard to refute their experience. So if you get people in a mode of like, you know, I think this because of this experience or that experience or this experience, you're now in a whole different kind of realm because um, stories, first of all, they, they affect our brains differently. They fire up our mirror neurons where we identify with the other person. Uh, that's, that's one big factor. When people are arguing, they're often trying to use facts to persuade each other. Well, there's something called the backfire effect, which basically facts don't really work to change people's opinion. So, so if you keep the conversation um, mostly in the realm of storytelling and not in the realm of opinion right. clashing, you can make more progress. And then we're all making sense out of, well, how does your experience 
how do I put that together with that person's experience? What does that mean about the world? We're working together to figure things out as right, opposed exactly. to ramming each other's opinion. David, David, what's your hope for America? Do you have a, a dream and a vision? I mean, I think the Martin Luther King says, I have a dream, you know, where little black kids and little white kids can play together and uh, they'll be judged more of the content of their heart rather than the color of their skin. Uh, what's your dream? Um, okay. You want David's I have a dream speech. All right. Yeah. So, <laughs> I would say uh, the dream is a future where we all can own the good and bad parts of our history. Yeah. Right. So, like, you know, you got three people who yeah. kind of like, like they can't, they're all proud of like the Western expansion, but don't want to talk about the genocide. Right. Then you have other people who are very identified with the genocide and can't talk about the courage of the Western expansion. Right. So, you want to create a, a a society where there's a narrative, there's an inclusive narrative that includes all the good and bad things, and we both we all can own that as part of our collective history, as opposed to um, that was your history or that was my history or whatever. Right, all our history is the problem that we have forgotten how to debate. Debate has been around for centuries, right? That's how we come problem, together. You're not hearing me, brother. The problem is it's too much debate. That's the, my point is it's too much debate. There's not yeah. enough dialogue. Like in debate, it's just the debate, you're not really going with, with, with evidence. You're going with opinion. In debates, you're going with opinion and evidence, but in dialogue, you're going with experience. That, that, that's, that's, the, that's the difference, right? Yeah, that's yeah. interesting for people. That's what makes but you the dialogue. It also has to do with how you're that. listening. Like in a, in a, in a de debate, you're listening for what the person said is wrong as opposed to dialogue, listening to what the person said is that might be true. What, what did you say, Neil? I, I talked over you first. No, that's no, that's fine. No, I'm going to go this. We'll just jump real quick. What should the Royals do? So Megan and stuff, how can they get back the relationship with the Royals in a way and, and create more positive dialogue that's happening between them? The well, Royals I mean, what, and what's sure. so one of the things that we got to look at is like, um, there's this big uproar because because Harry said that some what somebody said they were asking about the skin color of the baby. What mixed race family has not had a conversation about the skin color of a baby that's coming out, right? Of you know that's that's just the nature of yes of people's curiosity. Now it could have been done in a tone that was really really messed up, or it could have been in a, in a tone that was not messed up or anywhere in between. So part of what this whole thing shows up is the ambiguity of these kind of conversations. That person needed to have a conversation with whoever, whether whether it was the prince or whoever it was, uh, Prince Charles, whoever, to, to to say what did you mean by that, right? or or when I when you asked that, I kind of felt like you were denigrating my child. Was that what you were right. doing? Like, like they should, he should have had a conversation, and, and he still could have it. What was behind that question? Now, given everything else that they talked about about trying to take the, the child security clearance and all that, it probably was right. kind of racist, right? But but I'm just saying. We, what we don't want to walk away from is like the idea that just because somebody asked that that isn't self racist. That's number one. Secondly, you know, I go I go with the theory from uh, that that show Avenue Q. Like we're all just a little bit racist. Like we need to get past this whole thing where some people are racist, some people are not. Like I heard I heard Prince Harry asked uh, Prince William, "Is the royal family racist?" Everybody's yeah. kind of racist. I mean, I'm saying you get these kind of accusatory questions that don't advance the discourse. We need to um, we need we need to shift public debate about that. But he needs to talk to his person, his family, and say we should let's go back to that moment and talk about what you meant and how I felt about. Ah, it. so so that's good to be looking at the true feelings of what meant and having dialogue instead of debate or or, or disagreement, right? Or, or shunning or, or attack. 
an mm-hmm. attack mode based on a question that Dave went through last week, but we won't bring up that never aired on the network. And Dave was just as just uh, was pointing a point of something and they wanted to be interviewed differently. Unbelievable. First time in 7,000 interviews, I couldn't air an interview, just yes. by giving you that point. It's wow. too bad. And so, yeah. And, and, and it was just, and I wasn't backed by the publicist, which is too bad. But if people listen to my show all the time, oh, well, I bring it up in another conversation and I'm having dialogue with somebody saying, you know, I'm not upset about that. But ultimately, if the question was asked in a racial tone, that would have made sense. But it it was not. It was just a question in reality. The thing is, is is that there's so many possibilities, right? It could have been asked in a a messed up racial tone and and, uh, Prince Harry got it right. It could have been that it was asked in a, a, a benign tone. And Prince Harry got it wrong, or could have asked in a bad tone, and the person who said it didn't think it was a bad tone. Like that, these these things are all. Did that, all that's all part of dialogue. Okay. All part, right. okay. So, you so Dave, you're the caregiver. Go with your caregiver question. Very interesting Same. conversation we've having or dialogue we're having with the dialogue guy. Uh, so go ahead and ask your question. Yeah, the Royals are fresh in my memory because I just finished watching The Crown, and that was that was interesting. But I am a caregiver. My wife suffered a stroke when she had a headache. Uh, 24 years ago, and it lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. And so we we struggle with dialogue. She still cannot talk, but she can communicate non-verbally through Pictionary and charades. And I mean, marriage is hard enough with communication. Wow. Take away the verbal oh, part. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but, you, get, you know, but- You'd be a special spot in heaven, brother. That's great. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. terrible to go through, but she yeah. through charades and Pictionary, two, two games I hate, by the way, and I suck at. But, you know, I'm learning to love. My question is, uh, everyone is eventually going to face some kind of caregiving experience. Either you're going to be one, you're going to have one. And uh, what is your, if any, experience with caregiving? Oh, we should come back on a whole other show about that. I, I, I was caregiving. Well, no, I do have a radio show. What's that? I says, I have a radio show to caregivers and maybe you should come on my show. My mom became paralyzed in 2012. And they wow. gave her six months to live, and she died in 2019 because of a whole bunch of effort by my dad and uh, me and um, my wife and a whole bunch of. And they, they, they like they told her she, not only is she have six months to live, she we shouldn't even try to treat her, right? So, yeah, yeah. so my I have a long experience of doing caregiving work. So I would just say that the the, the most important thing in terms of your question is um, is try to manage your your situation so that you're you're not just doing logistical management so and then some people have more freedom in that than others but what you what it becomes burdensome is if all your time is spent on logistics and uh and arranging and caregiving and not being with the person you got to make sure that there's enough time where you can be with the person which helps remind you of why you're doing all the rest of that and so some, some people have you know, not that they're super rich, but some people can make choices where, okay, I'm going to pay somebody to do X amount of activities. I'm going to pay somebody to do the grocery shopping. I'm going to pay somebody to do, uh, to give the person a bath so that in my time, I can be with the person, right? As yeah. a person caring for them physically like that. You'd be a great guest on my show. I really like to have you talk yeah, to we'll, we'll, we'll make sure he just needs to follow you. Dave, what are you on Clubhouse? That's all he does is again, David needs to follow Neil at Neil Haley on Clubhouse. And I will, David- follow, I will follow you on Clubhouse. I think I think my Clubhouse. I'm, I'm trying to remember. 
Uh, yeah, just, you'll account? find me. You'll find me just at Neil Haley. It's very simple. And then how Dave, many followers have you got, David? He's oh, not doing that. Clubhouse oh, that much. Oh, I, I don't have that many. He's too busy. I, I, like I'm trying he's to grow busy, my Instagram yeah. and Twitter. The, the, the stuff keeps changing. Yeah, Clubhouse I'm, is going to be the best thing, and I'm going to teach David that because that's the perfect thing. Because people on Clubhouse need to know how to find you. So best thing at the Dialogue Guy on Twitter and Instagram, and that's Clubhouse right. too at the, the Dialogue Guy as well. Well, I was just trying to look it up. That's I don't okay. Re- you'll make you can change it. Make sure it is. <laughs> Everyone check him out. David you Camp. You can find it with his name and, also. And, and yeah. you have, you have, you have, my name, right, David. You have a book as well, right? You have a book? Oh, I have a few books. So, yeah, yeah if, you, if, you go to, if you go to thedialoguecompany.com, you'll see also the book. I have a book called Compassion Transforms Contempt. I have a book called Equipping Anti-Racist Allies. You know, I've written um, several books. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to move the portion. Remember I said that white people are half split in half about their feeling about racism? Right. One of my goals is to move that number. Bless you. Move that number. 10 points by 2025. Exactly. Another of my goals is to deal with this whole horrible polarization problem between the left and the right. That's my, that's my book, Compassion right. Transform. Okay. Awesome. You have a great mission. We appreciate it, David. Guys, thank you again. That was thank the you. Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. Take care, guys. Neil Haley here. Lensec has been a sponsor of the Neil Haley Show and Total Media Network for around a year and a half. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Lensec. Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security videos since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K through 12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. Lensex enterprise-level video management software, Perspective VMS, is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit Lensec.com. And now back to the show. We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Total Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome to the program George Newbern. And we all know him from as Charlie in ABC's TV series Scandal and Brian McKenzie in Father of the Bride films. How are you, George? Thanks for stopping by, man. I'm doing good, man. I'm uh, up early over here in Los Angeles. I don't know where you are in the country. You're probably... Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Eastern. So Eastern. I've been Pittsburgh. up since... Yeah, I've, you're, you're been up for a while. I've been up Just since 5.30. Yeah, I've been up since 5.30. Yeah, okay. I was on Clubhouse at 6.30. So there you go, that addiction mm. of Clubhouse. I'm so addicted, man. It's, what, I, don't even know, I don't even know what Clubhouse is. What is Clubhouse? So Clubhouse is an audio app, okay? So you basically go into rooms, the different rooms based on specific things like podcasting or voiceover or whatever. Right. And basically what you do in those rooms, what's really cool, is it, it's, it's, it's a, just an audio chat. So you see your face and you oh. talk audio-wise, and it's the hottest 
craze. You got to Google it, but it's invite only. So George, if you see my cell phone number and you want an invite, just text me yeah. offline and I'll get you an invite. Yeah. Okay. Cause I mean, it's, all, yeah, it's an awesome, it's an awesome app for sure. Look at club. I'm waiting for clubhouse to pay me for these advertisements. Come on now guys. <laughs> no, but I mean, they've had That's people right. like Elon Musk has been on there and all these things. And as a voiceover right. guy, and even, I mean, it's worth already a billion dollars. So you have to Google it when you get a chance, George. But so, George, wow, so basically wait. acting, what led you to voiceover? Were you always a voiceover guy? You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a guy who's done a little of everything my whole career. I did a, my first cartoon series uh, after when I first got to L.A. The first year I was there, I did a, a series for Hanna-Barbera called uh, Pirates of Dark Water. And I played the the protagonist in that thing. It was awesome. I got to work with you know Jody uh, Jody Benson and uh, the Little Mermaid. Uh, um, uh, who was it? Uh, Tim Curry and Malcolm Mc, uh, Roddy McDowell and uh, Jonathan Winters was on. I mean, it was a it was a nutty crew. It was great. It's really fun. But anyway, uh, so I started doing that, and then I did on camera stuff uh, immediately as well. And and then um, I've just sort of been doing it on and off uh, throughout my career. And the audiobook thing sort of has happened in the last six six years or so, just because I was looking for something that was um, something that I could hopefully generate and not have to rely on my agents and um, something that was uh, creative uh, and um, steady, you know, sort of steady, creative, and um, I wouldn't have to depend on someone else. So this this fit the bill, and it and it keeps you know keeps my mind active and. Um, it's it's uh, it's been it's great. It's a great um, anti a sort of antidote to on camera work in many ways, you know. So let's kind of so, and that's interesting. I want to be a voiceover guy. I honestly do. And I, what tips would you offer me? I've learned first of all. I thought, man, this is tough. You got to read so many things, but it's really line by line. So it's very painstaking to do voiceover. It's not just like you're going to read a whole entire script. Yeah. You're going to stop I in would, between. I would, yeah, I would tell you. Yeah, it is a. And I've said it before. It's a, it's like being a one-man band. You have to you have to um, analyze <clears throat> as an actor. You have to analyze the material. You have to direct yourself in the material. You have to actually interpret and perform the material, and you have to engineer all at the same time and direct yourself at the same time. So it is like if you're a one-man band, uh, and you have to have um, really athletic um, skills uh, to be able to to do it. I mean, anybody can sit down and read a book and put their, put, you know, stick a microphone in front of you, but you, you have to really envision, I think someone driving their car or, you know, do it folding their laundry and what, what is, you know, vocally going to get their attention, but not take the listener out of the story. So I think that's the, uh, that's the challenge. It's so funny. I looked at, I, I, I've been doing a bunch of books and I finished this one about two months ago and I've done sort of five books since then. So I had to sort of refresh myself um, about this. And I went to audible and I was looking, sometimes I, I can't help but look at a review to sort of see how it went. I was like, the first one was like, this is a terrible narrator, the worst narrator I've ever heard. And then the one right below it, best narrator I've ever heard. So <laughs> I, you have to have you, thick skin. You, 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 you have Number to have... one, you can't look at reviews. You can't look at reviews, but, but, um, but really it's, you can't do too much in an audio book, but you have to do enough to, to engage the listener, not be annoying. Cause there, there are a lot of narrators. I've, I've, I've I mean, God bless them, but I'll listen and I'll go, how in the hell can someone listen exactly. to that? Exactly. Exactly. Why? Um, how? But, yeah. So you have to have kind of almost a, 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 not a boring voice, but, but, a, but a, a voice that's not, um, doesn't uh, annoy and, and, and grate on someone 
So almost a, a colorless sort of voice, but at the same time, a, an ability to characterize um, the, the action in, in, a, in, a, in a fiction. And then in a nonfiction, you know, you have to sort of bring it in a conversational way as if someone was sitting next to you telling you about Benjamin Franklin or, you know, World War II or, you know, the vaccine. And, so it's more, know, it's a lot more acting. Voice <laughs> actors and versus voiceovers are two different animals, it sounds like. Complete, completely. The, the audiobook, the, by the way, the audiobook world is, is its own beast. It is not at all like voiceover. It is not at all like animation. It's not like, it is its own discipline, its own thing. And I mean, it's more, in, in many ways, it's more like, um, yeah, I, I went to Northwestern and we studied, uh, I studied theater, but there was a department called uh, Interpretation of Literature. And it's basically, you stand at a lectern and you you read you read fiction or material out loud, and you sort of personify it, but you don't dramatize it. It's a weird distinction, um, but it's it's sort of like a, it's um, almost like readers theater, you know. I mean, so I could I could I don't know if I could do that, and you can't tell my voice because I'm coming in through a phone with you the way I have it hooked up with my mixer, so it goes to my mixer or my professional road mic, and right. then it goes into the recording audio. So you can't rate my voice or anything. But on Clubhouse, I they tell, I can tell you right now, you've got a radio voice. I'll tell you that. Okay. Oh, and I don't even try. I don't even try to do that. Radio voice. Uh, yeah. So I was. Does that equate to <laughs> voiceover? So you know. Well, thank you. I greatly appreciate that. But uh, people have told me that on Clubhouse, so I'm like, you know what? I don't know. I'll maybe put it out on Fiverr, you know, and then you, you know, you charge based on the number of projects and stuff, but we'll see. We'll play it by ear, uh, something for other place. But let's yeah, talk about the book. Yeah. Got, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say, like life, it's, you know, you just 95% of it is showing up. So go for it. Exactly. <laughs> so again, let's talk about, uh, and or I'll do it for my clients, though. So it's, it is what it is. All right. So the voiceover acting gig you're doing is we begin at the end. So tell us about that, yeah. uh, about the book, the audiobook. Yes. Well, the, the book is it's um, it's a sort of part thriller, uh, part mystery, uh, but mostly I think it's a, it's it's sort of uh, about love and 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 loss and um, sacrifice. Really, it's um, it sort of takes place over thirty years uh, in a Northern California town about um, this uh, little thirteen-year-old girl and her little brother who are basically orphaned, and a, a police chief in town who sort of is sort of checking in on them and trying to help them while they navigate being bounced from place to place. And simultaneously, um, this police chief's best friend from high school is being re has been released from prison for murder. So uh, you kind of find out why he was, why he went to prison, what really happened. And, uh, it's, it's pretty heartbreaking actually, but, but ultimately, um, affirming and, and, uh, sort of, uh, uh, a way that that you that that families take care of themselves and different definitions of family and try to sort of stick together and, and raise each other really you know it's great it's a great book honestly all right Chris yeah, Whitaker, did a great no book. absolutely and how do you like you were talking a little bit about that but what about putting yourself in the mind of that author because i think it's important whatever the writer is thinking the person telling the story and the characters you really have to live them in a lot of ways do you read the whole book before doing an audio book or do you try to get the premise of how you the, the characters I, I are and it, stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Most books, honestly, I can't read every single page of it, but you have to know, especially in a fiction, you need to know where the story is headed with the story arcs and the main characters and, and, you know, what beginning, middle, and you need to know what the story is. Um, 
and you do to do research, uh, you know, I need to know what the author's done and the sort of the style and the rest of it. But uh, honestly, there's not enough time in the day to read it. The, the amount of books that I'm doing is not enough time to read every single page. I can't be up. I wouldn't have time to eat or, you know, sleep. So, uh, but specifically uh, with, with this book, um, I don't know the, the mind of Chris Whitaker. I don't know what that is, but uh, I try to get a feel for, what I think it is. And I mean, I guess that's part of the, you know, part of the quote unquote art of doing it is that you sort of interpret what you believe the, the author's intention is without in, you want to give a little bit of yourself, but without trying to uh, impinge on the author's uh, intention. It's, it's a, it's a delicate, it's a delicate dance. You know, you don't want to say, I'm going to make this book my own. You don't want to do that. You want to, uh, channel as much as you can the, the tone of the author and the writing and and bring the story to the listener that, that that's your job really so okay all right so let, let, let's go um continue um this conversation i just love this this topic this is a fun topic and so yeah. what did your yeah. so and basically doing th- these interviews what would you say about getting to to voice over the whole book. What are your thoughts of the book? What did you enjoy most about it without giving it away? The story. What, what, I, what I love about the book is that it is, um, I think it is ex, expertly written in terms of a uh, tone and uh, the sort of emotion. He's, he's really great at sort of getting into a character's um, life and, and the, the, the sort of inner life of these characters. You, you 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 feel you feel what it's like to be in their shoes, and you have a special a special empathy for this thirteen year old girl um, as she sort of faces life, and is she's seeming seemingly really tough and cynical, but she's really just trying to survive. And I think we all feel that way in many ways. You know, you feel like that kid at that playground who's like no one's talking to. I think everybody has felt like that, uh, and I, I get that sense from her that she's sort of the the eyes and ears of the author trying to navigate you know, life. Most definitely. All right. So I guess what, what's coming up with you? What are other new things? I think everyone needs to definitely check out the book for sure. And I, I find I like yeah. any type of thriller for sure, but what's new with you? What, what are, I know all the fans uh, well, of you, you know, want to know I, what's going I, on with I, you. I, I would, I would, I would love to tell you that I'm, you know, I'm flying to Malta to do a movie with George Clooney, but that's not happening. But, uh, I, I'm right now, <laughs> I've had a couple of auditions and, uh, hopefully, you know, maybe we'll hear something back soon on some of these. Um, I've had some I've had some jobs that may have happened in Canada, but with the quarantine, it didn't make sense to leave. So uh, I've pretty much just been here doing audiobooks and hanging out with my but, family. And, but uh, it's good. It's work, you know. right? It's work and it pays you, right? Good. And it's good work. Yeah, That's good. the thing. Oh, people, yeah. No, no, I've people, been working, but I haven't been doing it. <laughs> but people don't understand that voice actors are worth a lot of money, guys. That's why I'm asking you these questions, because they truly are. Because the, the fact is well, that yeah, a voice yeah. sells everything and anything, for sure. It, it, uh, it you know really does you don't really realize how, throughout your day if you're consuming media in any way you're actually you're listening more than you're well as much if not more than you're looking you know if you're driving in your car you're listening to music and they get the radio the commercials and all the commercials on TV you're you're actually hearing what the guy's saying as well as looking so there is a ton ton of of uh, audio work uh, out there that that uh, people don't quite appreciate you know how much a part of their lives it is you know and the audio books yeah sorry i was going to just kind of close out is your audiobook is not the audiobook we begin at the end is available where where can we check out the audiobook 
gosh, I know it's on Audible. That, that's uh, every, Audible. Every book I do is right on Audible. That I know. It's Macmillan is the is the is the publisher, but uh, it's Audible's probably the easiest way to get it. Hey, and I'm gonna be rooting for you. And if you want to jump on Clubhouse and teach people tips and tricks, just go find my go to my website neilhaley.com. My cell phone number's there. Text me. Text me. Say hi if you want to. I'll give you All an right, invite buddy. as ASAP. So I appreciate it. Awesome. All right. Take care. Great to you too. Take care. Bye bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Celebrity slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download, free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. Uh, we're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Total Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome the program, Nick Loeb from Roe v. Wade. Nick, what's up? How are you, man? Good, Neil. How are you? Thank you so much Good. for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Before we get into the movie, I wanted to kind of talk about your background. I mean, you always wanted to be an entrepreneur because entrepreneurship was first, then acting was second. Now filmmaking and really making a movement is now where you're at now. So you're making films to really kind of make a difference in this world in so many ways, but kind of explain that background of his entrepreneurship. to. Where, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, it was, it's sort of a mixed bag. I mean, I, you know, I studied business in school. Um, my, I started my career in film at 22, um, really first six, seven years out of, out of university that was in film and producing and acting. And uh, then I had to go make some real money and, uh, and, and started also becoming partly an entrepreneur to make real money. I, I always tell people, you know, I, uh, I make money as an entrepreneur and I lose it in film. <laughs> and so I took a bit of a hiatus uh, in film for a while and I came back and um, I'm a bit a mixture sort of a both of a, an entrepreneur and in the film business. I mean, now as I've gotten older, I'm just focused on, on what I'm passionate about and what I love. Um, and that's film in terms of making movies about movements. It, it really wasn't um, uh, an idea that I wanted to do. Um, Roe v. Wade, initially, the concept and idea was um, to make a movie about a court case that the entire world country has heard about, but nobody knows anything about, which I thought was relatively interesting and also very entertaining because it wasn't sort of a dry courtroom drama type movie. It was sort of right. like an Oliver Stone conspiracy theory movie. Um, and and um, I'm, a, I'm a huge lover of history, so I now really truly only focus on historical films. My next film um, is not necessarily a film for a movement, um, although there could, you could say there could be, but it's, it's a historical piece um, as a story that's never been told as well. And see, this is the thing, watching the trailer, the first trailer you had out before and just seeing specifically enough, the all-star cast you put together and then the story that you cannot decide what you're thinking about, Nick, what side you're on in the story, because there's two sides to the story. People that this movement this this court case has changed the lives of everyone for the better some people think and the worse for other people but we can't tell based on the story which side you're on 
Nick. And I think that's important. In, in <clears> yeah, I mean, this, you know, yeah. my goal was not, I didn't come from the faith-based community. So I came from the film world. And so my goal was not to make a hit you over the head, preachy film, you know, all about faith, God, and babies. My goal was to make an historically accurate, dramatic piece based on a court case of how, uh, that the most famous court case in American history about how it got there and how it came to be. <clears throat> and you have the pro-lifers and the pro, pro-choice guys and they're battling it off. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, people will have to take a look at it and make the decision for themselves. Um, you do have two of the characters in, in the movie that convert and become pro-life because that's what happened historically. Right. Historically, there was no pro-life characters that converted and became pro-choice in, in the story. <clears throat> so for that, it, it may, you know, slant a little bit pro-life, but it's up to the, I mean, a lot of people think it's in the middle. A lot of people think it's, well, I think it's definitely the middle. You could not tell. And then I was wondering, wow, someone made a mo- movie that's pro-choice on Roe v. Wade. Wow. Now that's going to really tick off conservatives, right? You know, that's going to the pro-lifers. And then, but then after you find out that's not the case, you're like, wow, this is really right down the middle, you know, because. Well, have you had a chance to see the movie, Neil? I have not saw it yet, but I want to. <laughs> well, have you, I guess you'll make up your mind when, when you see it. So it depends where you are. I mean, I think if you are, it depends where you are. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of people who really aren't even in the movement, right, who haven't really, who don't really care about the issue, um, right, you know, find it to be evenly balanced. People who are dogmatic about the issue one way or another do not. Really? Okay. So, Nick, so I'm pro-life, okay? I'm, I'm a conservative, but again, I won't put that out there like, you know, like, pro Trumpster, different things. I go into just a way of the journalist to make sure I am fair and balanced in my interviews and discussion matters. Some of my co-hosts that they really can they really show their true colors, but I've been in the pro I marched done March for life. When I was a school teacher in a Catholic school, three, four years, uh, I felt the, the power and the pain of what's happened. And you look at specifically enough, both sides, you're right. They're going to have a different perspective than somebody that really doesn't care about the issue. But to get all these amazing, this cast together, that, that's got to be a, a challenge, right? First presenting that to each one of them to say, I want you to be part of this film. And yet it's right down the middle because you, a lot of filmmakers really put a story that is going to, to show that there is a theme based on what the filmmaker wants. Yeah, I mean, if you take a look at my, you know, so a lot of people will take a look at the cast and say, oh, John Boyd, it's a right wing conspiracy movie. I'll tell you, though, the majority of the actors in the movie, even the majority of the politically conservatives were pro-choice. Uh, and and they wanted to do the movie <clears throat> because they read the script. And after they read the script, they were sort of, I know John himself was just floored at the amount of information that we laid out and thought it was extremely interesting. Um, I think the second reason that a lot of the cast ended up doing the movie was because it was an historical piece and they got to play uh, Supreme Court justices. I mean, guys that were, you know, pillars and gods of the legal system at the time they lived. And for an actor to get to be able to maybe play Justice Brennan or Justice Berger or Justice White or Rehnquist or Powell or any of these guys, I think was an, an amazing opportunity 
one that you actually never see in Hollywood. I've actually never seen a movie where any of the Supreme Court really is is portrayed in any any movie. And I think that's that they found that to be very interesting and intriguing. And and, and having a script that was like this, I think, really is what helped get cast. And how, how did that process go? Did you think you were going to land the cast that you were able to land? No, I thought it was going to be a huge uphill challenge, mainly because I was pro-life. Um, <clears throat> there, it does, it does in the movie show a lot of the bad things the pro-lifers. I mean, you may not want to say it's bad, but it was the way they got things done. It may not have been, <clears throat> for the lack of a better phrase, kosher. Um, um, and uh, and so there was sort of an angle. So no, I thought it was going to be ch- be challenging. Um, and, but we ended up with some great, you know, great cast, you know, and, and guys that have been I mean, guys that were huge when I was growing up. I mean, I was addicted to Duke right. of Hazard and yeah. and having John Schneider and Steve Gutenberg there, <clears throat> you know, was for me like the best thing in the world, uh, it, you know, or having Jamie Kennedy from Scream or Joey Lawrence yeah. from Blossom or Stacey Dash from Clueless. It was like, you know, all of these actors that I grew up with that were sort of iconic. Uh, during their their time was sort of it was amazing yeah. exactly and then but then i could just see how you painted the picture how well done it is that really looks like the court looks like the history of it it looks like just the dr- drama that you want to see the film just to see what happens in the story and to know the backstory which isn't out there right we all know the the, the case but that's it we don't know the backstory we don't know the backstory leading up to it really and we don't know the, what, what the reasoning and how difficult it was for that case to be turned the direction it was. And then just from that process, that's what makes it interesting. So kind of describe without giving away the film in the way that basically what led up to this, this case and stuff. That again, and how they... <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, this, the, the case came about because essentially Planned Parenthood and NARAL were the two leading... Uh, um, women's rights groups or pro-abortion right. groups in the country at the time. And they were trying to change the laws on a state-by-state basis. And they just thought, this is going to take forever. We got to change the laws in 50 states. And they said, maybe we can get the Supreme Court to do it in one fell swoop across the nation, but we need to find a girl. And they went out and searched for a girl. And they met the girl, Norma McCorvey, a.k.a. Jane Rowe, signed her up, never spoke to her again. Um, and that and that sort of and then they had to figure out how to get into the Supreme Court. And they had the perfect story for her to be the one, right? That Well, they did had, you know, it's interesting. You'll find out in the movie they didn't have the perfect story because the problem was getting a girl that no girl wanted to come out at a time saying publicly and including Norma. And this is what actually gave them the perfect cover. They gave her the pseudonym of Jane Rowe. So right. nobody could ask this girl any questions, know about her, know about her background, <clears throat> know that she had, had already had two children. This was her third child. Uh, she never even had an abortion. Um, and she was a disaster. Um, uh, she was a runaway, an alcoholic, um, but none of that would come up or play into the case because she was cloaked under the pseudonym of, of Jane Rowe. And that was the brilliance of, um, of the case. 
And um, anyway, there's a lot more to it. And again, I don't want to give it away. No, not at all. They really utilized, <clears throat> they utilized the media. In very, and you'll see in the film what's very similar and has a lot of parallels is what's going on today is how much influence the media has on the courts and just some people in general. And, you know, the two protagonists of the movie, Bernard Nathanson and Larry Later, truly understood that, understood how to use the media and how to manipulate it. And you'll see throughout, they then, at the end of the movie, they, they confess. Um, they essentially confess about everything that they did um, and all the things that they did weren't on the up and up. And all of that's taken from their books, which they came out and confessed. Well, not all of them, Bernard did, uh, not Larry. But. See, that, see, that's amazing. And meaning just the fact of just how the, this that they were able to manipulate the me, the media was able to manipulate the story to the court. So everyone saw this in a different lens, kind of like you said, during the election or COVID, two different areas that the media was controlling everything that's happening and, and dictating what's what, where, what, what there's only one right way to view this, not in both the, the lens of half the country that disagreed completely on this. It was really interesting. And it was, it was, it was in an essence of the time, uh, brilliant. And they were really masterminds and brilliant the way they orchestrated all of this. And you'll see when you see the film. Was that in the film? Are we going to be surprised at the outcome after all the evidence that comes through? Well, I think everybody knows what happened, right? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah they do, yeah. but meaning just- The outcome is there. I mean, the, the end of the movie is not the end of the court case. The end of the movie is the end of, uh, sort of, you know, through Bernard's journey, through the end of his journey. Um, and then, and I think there you'll be surprised by, you know, the people who don't know the story will be surprised by the outcome. Um, I think a lot of people who came, who seen the movie and come out of it have been infuriated with what happened uh, I think this has angered a lot of people seeing the movie, um, upset people. I have a lot of people who have come out crying and I'm very emotional uh, to see what Bernard did and went through uh, and what has happened and how it went down. I, this is not a, you know, fairy tale ending, uh, right. but it's an ending I think that gives people some sort of either pause that maybe are in the middle or some people are on the right a call to action. Well, especially with the last, pre our last president, President Trump was able to, really move it towards the case for the overturn now doesn't look very possible at all. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it'll, you'll be at a stalemate. I know that um, president Biden is uh, trying to codify uh, Roe, um, you know, because of a part of the argument that you'll see is that, you know, it's a law that was, the law should be created by Congress, not the judiciary, uh, which is how our government is structured. And so he's looking to codify law, uh, codify Roe. I don't think that's going to happen either. And I don't think, um, and, and listen, there's, a, there's more of a chance that this could go back to the Supreme Court or a case and it could get overturned than, than it would be codified. But what I think people don't realize today is that Roe v. Wade, um, whether it's overturned or not, has nothing to do with legalization of abortion. People don't realize that. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, all that doesn't make abortion illegal. It just sends it back to the states. Right. It becomes a state's rights issue. And so, um, essentially, uh, you know, and that's the way it should be a state's rights issue, or it'll end up being going to Congress and creating a law, the, the proper way things should be done in our country. Not let the courts make the decision, let our lawmakers make decisions. I mean, I mean they wouldn't even be beyond making a decision. They actually not only made a decision based on law on this 
law that they just passed that wasn't even a real law based on the right to privacy that they said was in the Constitution that wasn't in the Constitution that they based Roe off. But then they came out and they created, the judges created a three trimester system. Like that's not the job of any judge to create a, a system exactly. of laws based on medical trimester. They're not even doctors. And, and, and then they not only created this medical trimester system, they then created a loophole that made the trimester system irrelevant. I mean, we're the one of the only, I think there's four countries in the, in the world that have such permissive abortion laws that you can have, a, you can literally have an abortion at any time when you want to the day of birth in America, if you truly want, anywhere is, in the country. I is think that different like, in other countries? In most countries, you can, most countries, I mean, I, you know, I spend a lot of time in Western Europe, in most countries, you can't have an abortion uh, after the first uh, trimester. Um, and, and, um, and I, you know, and I think the challenge in America is, except for now a couple of states, I mean, if, if, you know, if you feel in month nine that you don't want the baby anymore and you go to a psychiatrist and say, I'm, if I have this baby, I'm going to kill myself. The psychiatrist will write like, she needs an abortion because her life is in danger. And she'll be able to use the argument that it would, she needs an abortion to save her life. Yeah, that's, that's how she can get get away with with getting around the three trimester system today in America. Wow, it's so such interesting stuff that is covered in this film. And what is your whole goal at the end of this? What do you want people to learn? I want people to know that I want people to understand the truth, see what actually happened, um, have a fair discussion. And I want truly people to understand and what you'll see in the film. And I think a lot of my generation is missed on this. I think the younger generation, not so much because of technology, but that when a woman is pregnant and she has an abortion, it's not a clump of cells or a gabagoo. It's a human being in a life. <clears throat> and whether you still believe in abortion after that or not, I want everyone to understand that an abortion kills the life of a, a live, living human person. What has been the response, Hollywood, of you making this film? I mean, they have not been thrilled. Uh, you know, uh, we've had agencies out against us, big organizations trying to stop the film from coming out. Um, you know, so it, it's been challenging on, on that side. Um, and we'll see. It'll be out in three weeks. We'll see the reaction. And I think that, um, you know, people who really were involved, like true people who uh, were involved in the movie or read the script or like, I have a lot of friends who read the script. Most of my friends are pro-choice right. and liberals. I have a lot of friends who read it. I even have one actor in my movie who's a liberal who actually changed their position on abortion either after they read the script wow. or were involved in the film. Which you can't say. <laughs> you know, because he still wants to have a career in Hollywood. Yeah. So, I mean, my, listen, if I can change hearts and minds and if, if this movie can save one life, it was worth it. And that's fantastic. And you're doing this all on your own, funding it yourself, right? Pretty much, Nick, or are you close? No, we went out and we raised the money. Uh, I went out and raised money. We crowdfunded it. We have a, a bunch of investors. Funnily enough, our biggest investor is pro-choice. <clears throat> um, interestingly, what? Wow. And because he felt it was, he felt when he read the script, he felt it was 64, uh, like 50, 50. He now feels the way we cut it is 60, 40, but he felt it was 50, 50. Uh, he also felt that 
because it was he was you know a business guy and he felt because it was so controversial whether it was one side or the other that he would make a lot of money people would go and see the movie um so i you know everyone i have got investors that are catholics christians atheists jews that run the gamut um you know getting the movie financed uh takes a, takes them out the movie now question on the movie is it going to be in any theaters or or not or or you no, I, for us, you know, we, you know, most theaters are closed and the challenge with going into, into any theaters today <clears throat> is that you're required, you know, all the theaters require what's called a 90 day holdback. That means we can't stream the movie for another three months. Oh, goodness. So there's no reason to go out to 100 theaters that are open then to have to wait another three months to release it streaming. Um, you know, somebody came and they wanted, wrote me a big check to spend marketing dollars, then we could do that. But, you know, other than that, it's just not worth it. Gotcha. And so it'll be streaming. It'll be available in three weeks. We're going to be airing it again, but I just want to know available in three weeks. What's the date? And then it'll be available in all streaming platforms. Yeah. April 2nd, it should be available on Amazon, iTunes, everyone's local pay-per-view. If they've got cable or satellite pay-per-view, they should be able to buy it there. Oh, that's great. So you're going to be able to have it on the on-demand areas too. So that's yeah. awesome to have that. That took some time, right? This is an independent film to be able to get that, right? Not everyone gets that. Yeah, right we, have, that. we have a fantastic distributor, um, a team that's been in Hollywood for a very long time that understands the business and have deep relationships um, called Quiver Distribution. And they, uh, they were able to strike all those deals. How has the reviews gone so far? We've had great reviews. I mean, we, we the movie... Um, we haven't really sent it to reviewers. The only people who did reviews were people who saw it at, uh, during our premiere last week at, in uh, Orlando at CPAC. And so we had about three or four reviews out of there. Uh, we will end up sending it to reviewers. All of them were phenomenal. We the, you know, the best one was from a magazine called The New American. Um, and I, I was really blown away um, by the in-depth research that the journalist wrote uh, and the fact checking that she did, because there's been a lot of criticism in our film that we lied and manipulated and we made stuff up and blah, blah, blah. So in order to combat that, we actually on our website created a link called Fact Check. So if there's a scene in the movie, they say, oh, these guys made that up. There's no way that's for real. You can go to our website, go to Fact Check. You can read about the scene. You can see the actual source material that we got the information. And so- uh, That's great. I think you know, I mean, it'll be, it'll, it helps. It doesn't solve the issue of fake news because the news will still say whatever they want to say. Yeah. But the good news is that it's a split down the middle. And if you get the conservative people to stream this and really promote this, it could do really well. well from your lips to God's ears. Just think of different conservative movies or even Christian movies that have done so well in the box office, meaning like said, so, you know, did what very well. Yeah, unplanned it very well. I can only imagine God's not dead passion of the christ i mean a lot of these um have done very very well so you know we can only pray all right best place to to watch go and learn about the film before it launches and where where can we go yeah they can go to robywademovie.com um you can read all about the movie you can see the trailer clips you can even there are a lot of organizations and people doing pre-screenings um doing their own screenings in their homes churches or groups before the movie's released and they can actually sign up to do that 
and we can help set them up uh, through RoeVWadeMovie.com. Fabulous. Appreciate you stopping by. What You're really putting yourself out there. I guess not wanting to act in Hollywood again and make a comeback. That's not going to happen. But maybe, Nick, if you end up getting an award for your work, then, then you'll end up in maybe, who knows, the Oscars next year. You never know. Right? <laughs> uh, I, I won't even go down that route. But, you know, <laughs> but somebody's going to recognize I, I, white, white, white males don't qualify for Oscars anymore. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate you stopping by, Nick, and thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Okay. You're watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment.